Colossians chapter 2. Verse 16. So our text today is Colossians 2, 16 through 23, and we're going to look at the conclusion that Paul draws from all that he has thus far presented to the believers here, uh, to the Colossian church, and to the church at Laodicea. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. Paul writes, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, Why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. We ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit dwelling in us today, open our hearts and open our minds. Lord, transform us and conform us to the very image of Christ, that we would be your witnesses in this world in desperate need of Jesus. Lord, help the light of Christ in us shine brightly, for those who are walking in darkness. Father, we thank you for this, and for the privilege of being called your children, your church, your body. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 16, we're given the conclusion of Paul's thought conveyed in the previous verses. That's why this begins with the word so, or maybe your, your verse 16 begins with therefore. Because of Christ's work of redemption in us and the reality of what we have attained in him, Paul concludes thus, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. And then in verse 17, he describes some of these things that men are tempted to judge us by. And what they actually, what those things actually represent. All of those things regarding food or drink or a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, what day we worship on, what days we celebrate or what days we don't celebrate, those are all shadows of things to come, he implies here. This is what he's saying here. These are shadows of things to come. 
They are all shadows, but the substance, he says, the substance of them are all of Christ. The key words here are shadow and substance. One speaks of the reality of the other. The shadow speaks of the substance, which is the reality. Christ is the reality that is foreshadowed in all of these things as in all of the law. Then in verse 18, we have a warning to let no one cheat you of your reward. This is what I talked to the kids about. And so here the picture really is like an umpire, like a judge of a sporting event. And there are two things here to note. The first is that we're not to be cheated. Let no one cheat you. So you need to take note of that. There's something you can be cheated of. Don't let someone cheat you of that. And the second is the expectation of reward. So we need to be able to distinguish the difference between reward and our salvation. Our salvation is not our reward. Salvation is not a reward. God's not rewarding us by giving us salvation. Salvation is a gift. A gift is not a reward. You don't get a gift on your birthday because you earned it. You don't get a gift at Christmas because you earned it. Most of the time, we get gifts in spite of ourselves, in spite of the fact that we don't deserve them. Salvation is not a reward. It's the gift of God. But as we live faithfully in our salvation, given to us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, as we faithfully walk out our salvation, the Bible talks about rewards that we will earn. Paul says, I'm getting ready to leave this earth, and I have, I have earned the crown of life. The crown of life is awaiting me. Now, I believe this. We see this picture in Revelation where all those guys wearing crowns fall down at the feet of Jesus and cast those crowns at the feet of Jesus. Because even our rewards, we're going to realize that whatever reward we may obtain, whatever reward we may earn, we only obtained it. We've only been able to earn it by the grace of God. So we're never going to say, oh, look how good I am. No. When God, in His grace, rewards us for our faithfulness one day, when He says, enter in, my good and faithful servant, we will know that our entrance into the presence of God is only by His grace. Whatever rewards we may obtain, we will obtain them only because of His grace operating in our lives. So I want to make sure that you distinguish that your salvation is not a reward. God is not going to reward you with eternal life one day because you lived a better life than not here on earth. That's not how salvation works. We do not work for our salvation. It is given to us in spite of ourselves by the grace of God. So the warning, don't let someone cheat you of your reward. So there is the reality, the expectation of reward that we should live with. Paul goes on and he describes how one might be cheated of his reward. This would happen by taking delight in false humility and worship of angels or mediators that we don't need. By 
intruding or stepping into those things which he has, here it says in my New King James, not seen. Your translation, maybe in ESV, is not going to, going to have the word not there, in which he has seen. Well, which is it? Not seen or seen? Well, it's actually both. Things which he has seen, things which he has seen in his vainly puffed up fleshly mind, things which maybe he has seen through some demonic uh, means, but the point is the things that he has seen are not real. They're not actually doing anything to help the man. In fact, they're harming and they're robbing him. So what's referenced here are vain imaginations that are arrogantly inflated in man's carnal mind. And this can rightly be called idolatry. Verse 19 pictures the man who is vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind as opposed to having a spiritual mind in humility. And this man is not holding to the head who is Christ. He's instead proudly trusting in his own vain imagination. And as a result, he's not connected to the only source of life and nourishment and growth. He's not connected to life, but he's actually in death because he's not holding fast to the head. He's not connected to Christ. In verses 20 through 22, Paul begins these verses with another transitional conjunction. Therefore, remember when you see the therefore, you need to know what it's there for. Therefore, the thought is introduced with a question asking why you would subject yourself to regulations if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world. That's the question. Why would you do that? And the implied answer is that you would not do that if you have truly died to those things. In subjecting yourself to these regulations of carnal men, you are rejecting Christ who is the only thing that actually has the power to deliver you from the sinful indulgence of the flesh. And then in verse 23, Paul reminds us that these things indeed have an appearance, what things? These, these things that he talked about, these, this false humility, this neglect of the body, all of these things that we do to try to deliver, our, deliver ourselves from the indulgence of the flesh, all of these things have an appearance of wisdom. They may fool many men, but they have no actual wisdom. They bear no true wisdom. There is no wisdom in them. They involve self-imposed religion. Not imposed by God, but imposed by self. Sometimes we just do things because it makes us feel better, not because it really does anything to sanctify us. It doesn't do anything to earn us forgiveness because forgiveness is not earned. It's freely given to us by God. But we feel like we need to do something to punish ourselves, to, to earn it, and we impose things upon ourselves to make ourselves feel better, but it's really, it's not doing anything. It's a vain exercise that has no power at all. This is self-imposed religion. This is false humility. This even 
stoops to neglect of the body, but all these things are of no value, Paul says, because they are powerless against the indulgence of the flesh. Let no one judge you. In light, and so in the verses preceding, in light of all that Christ has done for us, disarming our our enemies, there is no accusation the enemy can bring against us any longer because we have been set free in Christ and those requirements, those, the handwriting of requirement has been wiped out by Christ. Our enemy is disarmed. There's nothing he can bring against us. Therefore, in light of all that Christ has done to redeem us and to set us free from sin, wiping out all those things that were against us, therefore, let no one judge you. So this is not a proof text for the battle cry of the modern-day woke social justice warrior who is quick to remind you all that you can't judge me. And then they might add something like, only God can judge me. And if they only understood what they were saying there, they would tremble at the very thought that God would actually and will actually judge them one day. It is true, God will judge them, but they obviously do not understand the implications of that reality. And this is obviously not Paul's intent here, for he qualifies this statement by specifying exactly what he's referring to. So people are quick to say, you can't judge me. You're not to judge. Jesus said, you're not to judge. The Bible says, you're not to judge. They really don't know what the Bible says because that's not what the Bible says. Paul, in context here, says, Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. This transitional conjunction, so or therefore, appears at the beginning of this verse, and it marks the conclusion of Paul's process of reasoning laid out in the preceding verses. In light of Christ's redemptive work, we are to let no one judge us in these areas regarding food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or what day we worship on, whether it's Saturday or Sunday. This was a major point of contention with many in Paul's day. Certain Jews insisted that those professing faith in Christ must also keep the law, including those concerning food and drink, as well as the regulations governing festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. To the Jew, the Sabbath was on Saturday. The church worshipped on Sunday. Why? Because it was called the Lord's Day, because it was the day that the Lord was resurrected. Well, in the old creation, the Sabbath was on Saturday. In the new creation, the Sabbath, or the day that we rest and the day that we worship in the new creation brought by Christ Jesus, we worship on Sunday. Is someone going to go to hell because they worship on Saturday? I personally think they're wrong for worshiping on Saturday. I think the church should worship on Sunday, but I'm not going to say they're going to go to hell because they worship on Saturday. But I think they should really study their Bible and and understand that there's a reason why the early church worshiped on the first day of the week because the first fruits belong to the Lord. And that includes the first day, not the last day of the week. Remember, people today, many people think Monday's the first day of the week, but it's not. Sunday's the first day of the week. 
I won't tell you like I told you once before, don't buy a calendar that has Monday starting as the first day of the week, but just in case you're buying a calendar, don't buy one that has Monday as the first day of the week, because it's not. Sunday is the first day of the week. We can fall into the same types of sinful judgments today regarding food and drink. There are Christians, there's Christian traditions that believe the Scripture teaches people should be vegan or that consuming any alcoholic beverage is sinful. We have wine for communion, and we have grape juice. Um, the Bible never says alcohol is sinful. It says being a drunkard is sinful. Being drunk is sinful, but drinking alcohol is not sinful. It's not. Being a drunkard is what is sinful, because when you're a drunkard, alcohol now controls you. And no one and nothing is to control you except the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And Peter's vision recorded in Acts 10, 9 through 16, the Lord instructed Peter to kill and eat. And the vision obviously included animals that Peter had lawfully considered unclean. And Peter says with a, 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 in his conscience, says, Lord, nothing unclean has ever crossed my lips. But God tells him, no, three times, kill and eat. Go and eat those unclean animals with a clear conscience because I now call them clean. And more importantly, the nations were now called clean by God, meaning Peter could, could and must proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. And God was showing Peter in all that salvation is for all people in Christ. When we judge, we are commanded to judge righteously without hypocrisy. It is a misunderstanding of Scripture to say that we are to never judge or that only God can judge. Consider the teaching of Jesus on how we are to judge. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, Jesus begins in verse 1, he says, Judge not that you be not judged. Now, if you stop right there, you could, if Jesus stopped right there, you could make an argument for saying that Jesus commands us not to judge, but that wasn't the point of Jesus. He goes on and he says, for, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He's not telling you not to judge. He's saying you need to be careful when you do judge. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but not consider the plank, the board in your own? How can you say to your brother, here, come, let me remove the speck in your eye when you've got a huge plank sticking out of your own? What does Jesus say? Just forget judgment. Just stay away from judgment at all because it's going to get you into trouble. No, that's not what he says. Verse 5, he says, hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you'll see clearly how to remove the speck from your brother's eye. First, we must understand that how we mete out judgment is how we will be judged in return. And it's not a matter of if we judge, but how we are to judge. As we carefully consider the words of Jesus above, we see that Jesus did not command that we never judge, but that we judge righteously, sparingly, and without hypocrisy. Judge sparingly, righteously, 
without hypocrisy. The point of righteous judgment is not to demean our brother. The point is to benefit and to bless our brother. On June 25th, when we go to the pride event, we're going to be accused of judging people. But that's not true. Well, we are judging their lifestyle as sinful as the Bible does, but we're not there to condemn them. We're there to love them and tell them the truth in hopes that the truth would set them free from the condemnation they're already under. It is true God will judge those outside, those of the world. The church is charged by God to judge itself righteously and without hypocrisy. So we're not going out there practicing church discipline because we're talking to people who are not in the church. They're outside the church. We're going out there to proclaim truth in hopes that the truth will set them free. But it is in the church that we are charged to judge righteously. Paul addresses this in his first letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 9, 5, 9-13. through 13. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Why? Because they're all around you. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetousness or covetous or an idolater or a reveler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. This is a person who is a brother who is unrepentant in their sin, not sorry for their sinful lifestyle. This is not a person struggling with sin. This is a person who says, you can't judge me. There's nothing wrong with my lifestyle. It's that attitude of unrepentant sin that has to be judged in the corresponding discipline meted out. Verse 12, for what, I ha- what have I to do with judging those who are outside Do you not judge those who are inside? God judges those outside. God disciplines those outside. We are to judge those and discipline those inside the church. But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Obviously, if we put away from ourselves the evil person, there's a judgment that took place there. And the warning of Jesus is, make sure when you judge, you meet it out in the same measure you're prepared to receive it, and that you do it righteously and without hypocrisy. And you do it in a manner that will bring restoration, because that's the point of discipline. The point of discipline is to restore the brother who is unrepentant in his sin. And Paul asked the rhetorical question in verse 12, do you not judge those who are inside? And the applied answer is yes, we judge those who are inside, but those who are outside, God judges. And if we are to judge those inside, how are we to judge them? Well, Jesus gives us the answer. We just looked at it in Matthew 7, 1 through 5. We're to judge sparingly, righteously, and without hypocrisy. And at the same time, we consider how we are to rightly judge We are to let no one judge us concerning those things that are given to us as shadows that point us to Christ. 
In other words, food and drink and festivals and new moons and Sabbaths, these are points of law and regulation that are fulfilled in Christ. These are points in which we are not to allow man to judge us. Why? What's the difference? Verse 17. These things are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Now the regulations of the law that foreshadowed Christ are fulfilled in Christ. That's the reality now. This is what it means when Christ is called the substance of those things that are only meant to be a shadow. A shadow of the things to come. Christ is the substance, meaning they are fulfilled in Christ. When you become a new creation in Christ, you are no longer obligated to observe regulations in the law regarding food or drink or special days. With the advent of Christ and the completed work of the cross, God, to make sure that these laws and these regulations associated with the temple and the law of Moses, those things that foreshadowed the coming of Christ, once Christ came, so that these would no longer be enforceable upon people, God destroyed the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. And if you haven't noticed, he's not allowed to be rebuilt yet. That temple. But he did three days later, after he destroyed the true temple, he rebuilt it in three days. When Christ was crucified, died, and was buried, on the third day he rose again from the dead. And John chapter 2 gives us the commentary here. When Jesus said, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they thought he was talking about the physical temple. And John says they misunderstood because he was speaking spiritually of his body. So the temple has been destroyed and it has been raised up again. You just have a bunch of people on earth looking for some temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. But Jesus is the third temple, the real temple. Jesus is the temple, that temple, and the one before it spoke of. Jesus is the substance that all these laws and regulations about food and drink and festivals and new moons, and it all pointed us to Jesus. That's what it means when it says he's the substance. So forcing others to keep the law of the old covenant was in direct opposition to the revelation of Christ and the gospel of the new covenant. And those things concerning food and drink and festivals and new moons and Sabbaths are not inherently sinful in themselves. What is sinful is engaging in them as a means of redemption or sanctification or deliverance from the indulgence of the flesh. I have to do this, or I can't do that, or I'm not going to make it to heaven. If I eat that, I won't make it to heaven. If I don't observe this day, God's going to get me. If I observe this day, God's going to get me. That's, that's not gospel. That's self-imposed religion. That's false humility. That's sinful and what this sinful act of engaging in these things as a means to somehow help us earn heaven or earn God's favor, that is what is sinful. What is sinful is to add to the work of Christ, or worse, to ignore that work altogether 
and engage in vain works of the flesh in hopes that they can add to or further secure our salvation. There is nothing, I want you to hear me, church, there is nothing you or I can add to the salvation that is given to us in Christ. It's not a reward. It is a gift. Your salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. Verse 18, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in these things, false humility, worship of angels, intruding or stepping into those things that he has not seen or those things he has seen vainly in his arrogant and fleshly imagination. Paul is warning here against false teachers who would defraud you of your reward. The word here translated cheat or beguile pictures an umpire or a judge in a sporting event, just like we talked about, defrauding you of your victory prize, depriving you of your salvation. These corrupt judges would take away your rightful reward. This is a warning against following their corrupt ways. Now listen, if God chose you and Him before the foundation of the world, you have nothing to do with your salvation. Except when He reveals it to you, you're to walk in it. And, and He gives you the grace to walk in it. And you say, well, preacher, how, how do I know that I'm saved? Are you walking in your salvation? Yes. Are you loving Jesus with all your heart? Yes. Then don't worry about it. Keep walking in faith. Keep loving Jesus with all your heart. And you don't have to worry about any of this. Keep running your race faithfully, and you'll never have to wonder if someone has beguiled you of your reward. But if you're out there trying to figure out how close to the edge you can walk without falling over into the fiery flames of hell, and you're trying to have it both ways, then you might need to question yourself and ask yourself, where is my heart? Where is my true love and my true devotion? Am I really devoted to God? Do I really love Him with all my heart? Or am I just trying to use Him as a safety net so I can go over here and live, just live a sinful life? Listen, Jesus is not your safety net. He's your Savior or He's nothing <laughs> to you. He's your Savior or your judge. And you don't want Him to be your judge. You want Him to be your Savior. And I think there's a lot of people who call themselves Christians who don't really understand that Jesus is actually their Savior, not their safety net. Jesus is not there so you can go live a sinful life and, and then run to Him when you have a, a spiritual emergency. And then once you're confident, once again, you're going to run back away from Him, but you kind of keep Him in your pocket like a rabbit's foot or a lucky charm. He's not a lucky charm. He's not a rabbit's foot. He is the Savior. He's the Lord of glory. He's the Lord of all. And we need to acknowledge Him as such. So Paul's warning against these false teachers that would cheat or beguile you of your reward, defrauding you. Those corrupt and false ways, how do they do that? By tempting you to walk in false ways, corrupt ways. These corrupt and false ways include taking delight in false humility. This is really nothing more than sinful pride that men love to parade around as humility. 
This is not true humility as seen in Christ. It is a false humility which translates to true pride, which God hates. In keeping with taking pleasure in false humility, there is also the promotion of worshiping angels. So the Greek word here for humility means lowliness. So in this context, it pictures, what Paul is picturing for us here is a context in which men profess themselves to be so lowly, so humble, that they could not come to the Father or to Christ on their own. They couldn't come on their own accord, but they had to have an angelic mediator. And they were proud of that. You see the... You see the irony there? I'm so proud of my humility. I'm so proud that I have to have an angelic mediator, unlike you, who think you can go directly to the Father in Jesus Christ. No. Thus, under the pretense of great humility, one must make use of angels as mediators. This need for angelic mediation leads to idolatry. Mary is blessed among all women, but Mary is not our mediator to the Father. Jesus said, you don't pray to me, you pray to the Father. You go directly to the Father in my name. So we're not even praying to Jesus. If you pray biblically, you're not even praying to Jesus. You pray to the Father in Jesus' name. You don't pray to Mary so she can go to Jesus, so he can go talk to the Father and say, listen, Father... This guy down here, he really needs some help. And I know he's not worthy to come to you directly. That's why he asked my mom if I would come and talk to you for him. <laughs> that is exactly what Paul is talking about here. And he says, this is false humility. This is wrong. Jesus did not die on the cross so that we would have to go through mediators to get to the Father. He said, now, you no longer pray to me. You go directly to the Father in my name. This is why when he taught the disciples, when they said, teach us to pray, Lord, he said, here's how you pray. My Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. How do you pray? You would pray directly to your Father in heaven, not through a mediator, not through angels. This is what these false teachers were trying to, to guilt the believers into thinking, you're proud because you think you can go directly to God, when they were doing exactly what Jesus taught them to do. And so the Judaizers, loving false humility, looked to angels as mediators. They promoted this false teaching in the church, and based on a false standard that opposed the gospel, they sinfully judged those who would not embrace such false teachings. And this false humility and false worship of angels is the result of men stepping into or intruding into those things which he has not seen, actually most of the manuscripts will say which he has seen. The oldest manuscripts omit the word not here. So it would read intruding into those things which he has seen, but they are saying the same thing. This is not contradictory. 
because both are communicating the same thought. Those things that he has seen are demonic manifestations of things not real. Listen, you can believe that angel is mediating for you and earning you something with God all day long, but just because you believe it's real doesn't make it real. It's false. It's vain. It's not real. You're not really seeing what you think you're seeing. And this is what Paul is communicating here. These are not real. In false humility, looking to and even seeing in their fleshly minds these angelic beings, they step into those things that are false, seen or unseen, conceived in their zeal for false humility and angelic interaction. They became vainly puffed up in their fleshly minds. We see this today among the false religions that seek to identify as Christian, especially those. It's nothing new. It's the same lie that's been offered to God's people since the beginning. A prime example of this is the false teachings of Mormonism. You know how Joseph Smith dictated the Book of Mormon? His family members that were there dictating tells us how he did it. He had a seeing stone. He says he had the, the, the Urim and the Thurim, Thuman. He says he has that, but he didn't. He did have a seeing stone, though. And he had that seeing stone in his hat, and he put his face in the hat, and he'd look into that seeing stone, and then he would dictate what the angel told him was the interpretation of those things. Now, did Joseph Smith really see something? Or was he pulling the wool over everybody's eyes, including all those people writing down, dictating the Book of Mormon? I don't know. It doesn't really matter because it was false. Because he was involved in idolatry. What, whether he saw it or didn't see it, it doesn't matter. And this is Paul's point here. It doesn't matter whether these guys have visions of angels or not. They believe it, and they're trying to get you to believe it. And if you believe it, you're going to be defrauded of your reward. If you start following those false ways, you're going to be defrauded of your reward. So Mormonism is a prime example here. The Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints teaches that an angel delivered to Joseph Smith a revelation that resulted in the Book of Mormon called Another Testament of Jesus Christ. And the Book of Mormon, along with other writings, is said to show the way to salvation, or more specifically, how to work your way to the celestial heaven. What Joseph Smith wrote down in what we know as Mormonism today is the very same lie that the false teachers in in, in the Colossian church, we're trying to get those believers to believe back then. There's some things that are different, time different, language different, but the lie is the same. There's nothing new under the sun. The devil is using the same lies he used then as he's using today. Those who tell you that there is any other way to salvation or that there is anything that must be added to the finished work of Christ as presented in the Scripture is presenting to you another gospel, a false Christ. 
These are false teachers presenting a false gospel, and you are not to give heed to their false teaching. These false teachers are presented here as sitting above you and judging you. This is what Paul is picturing here. And if they're doing that, guess who else they're sitting above and judging? They're sitting above and judging God and his truth. And that is a false reality because no one and nothing sits above God except some illusion in your mind. And you can believe it's real all day long, but it's not. Verse 19, what's the result? They're not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that's from God. These false teachers are vainly puffed up by their fleshly mind. They're trusting in their own works, their own righteousness, and they're not trusting in Christ. Therefore, they're not holding fast to the head who is Christ. Neither will you be holding fast to Christ if you follow these false ways. It's from Christ that all the body is nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments and grows with the increase that is from God. And if you are trusting in your own righteousness in part or in whole, I mean, if it's 99.5% the Lord, but 0.5% me, sorry. It's like we say, if God demands a perfect plate glass window... It doesn't matter if you hit that thing right in the middle with a hammer and shatter the whole thing, or if you just go down to the very bottom where it's almost invisible and nick it. If it's got a nick in it, guess what it's not? It's not perfect. And what God demands is perfection, and that is only attainable for us in Jesus Christ. It's from Christ that the body is nourished and knit together that the joints and the ligaments supply what the others need, and it grows with the increase that is from God. And if you're trusting in your own righteousness, in part or in whole, then you're not holding fast to Christ, who is the head. It is in Christ alone that you, as part of the body, can be nourished and knit together. It is in Christ alone that you can grow with the increase that comes only from God, There is no other name under heaven by which you may be saved and grow and increase to his glory. Notice how the picture is not just personal, but corporate here. Paul is writing of the body. You are the individual members, but you function only as a body. In verse 20, Colossians 2.20, he writes, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world... Why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? In Paul's question here in verse 20, he refers again to the basic principles of the world. The same word or phrase is found in Colossians 2.8. There he warned of being cheated according to the basic principles, or your translation may say something like this, the spiritual elements of the word. The word here is the Greek word, Stoicheon. It's defined by Thayer as any first thing from which the others belonging to some series or composite whole take their rise. An element, a first principle. 
It's the elements from which all things have come and the material causes of the universe. The, Gre the Greeks would have understood this word here Paul's using. The church in that day would have understood what he was saying. We can call it basic principles, but I think Paul uh, is, is using this word, and there's a greater context here. Paul gives a similar warning in his letter to the Galatians, who are being tempted to go back under the bondage of these elemental spirits of the world. For instance, in Galatians 4.3, he writes, Even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. It's the same word here. Or in Galatians 4.9, But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements or spiritual elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? There is a spiritual element to this word, and it is not just the material of the universe, but the material causes of the universe or in the universe. The spiritual elements governing all things. There are spirits, and John writes in his first letter, test the spirits and see whether they be of God. That tells us there are spirits that are of God. There is the Holy Spirit, and then there are other spirits that are not of God, and you better know which spirit you're messing with. And this is what Paul is warning the believers here concerning. There's a spiritual element of the universe not just the material, but the material causes in the universe. The spiritual elements governing all things. And if we've died with Christ to the spiritual elements of this world, why are we to be, I'm sorry, are we to be alive to Christ and walking according to the Spirit of God? So if we've died to the spiritual elements of the world, that means we're dead to the world, but we're alive to Christ and we're to walk accordingly. And here in Colossians 2.20, Paul assumes the believers, being new creations, having died to the spiritual elements of the world. This is the assumption. He's writing to them, assuming that they've died to this. But he's questioning them because he wants them to make sure that they know that they've died to it, or whether they actually have died to it. And having done so, having died to the spiritual elements of the world, they are to no longer be subjecting themselves to regulations and ordinances that are not, or that, that are of a fallen spiritual element or of an old creation. So they're new creations. Why are they living under the principles of the old creation? Well, they're not to do that, and neither are you. To die with Christ from the basic principles or the spiritual elements of the world is to no longer be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your baptism represents your death with Christ and your death to this world and the new life that you have in him. And Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross daily and follow me. Paul made the statement that he dies daily. These words of Jesus and of the Apostle Paul picture for us what it means to die with Christ from the spiritual elements of this world. It pictures no longer subjecting ourselves to the regulations and the ordinances that govern it because we've, we're dead to it. Those regulations, those ordinances are rooted in the lust of the flesh. 
So the solution for the lust of the flesh is never to focus more on the flesh. You know, it's like the old comedy routine where the guy smashes his uh, thumb with the hammer and his friend walks up and he goes, oh, what happened? I smashed my thumb with the hammer. Here, give me your other hand. And he smashes his other hand with the hammer. He says, he said, now what about, how does that one feel? You know, because he's distracted him. It, the point is, you're not going to get free from the indulgence of the flesh by focusing on the flesh. You're just going to become more focused and more inflamed in those things. And this is what these false teachers are basically trying to get the believers to do here. And this is a ploy of the enemy because the enemy knows that there is no power in that. You'll just dig yourself deeper and deeper and deeper into a hole of sin. And so Paul made this statement uh, saying that he dies daily. And what he meant by that is he, he dies to these elements of the world. He doesn't allow them to govern him, govern him any longer. So as we walk in the Spirit, we will no longer fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's what Paul writes in his letter to the Galatians. Walking in the Spirit does not mean you will not fall. It means you will not stay down. So I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying if you walk in the Spirit, you're never going to struggle with sin in the flesh. That's not what the Bible says. But what the Bible does teach us is you're never going to conquer your sin in the flesh or your temptations in the flesh by staying focused on those. Because that's what's going to be present before you. What you, what, you, what you gaze into, what you look into, that's what you're transformed into. That's why in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, gaze, look into Christ. Look and gaze into Christ and be transformed as you gaze into his image, as you look in that mirror. And so, as we walk in the Spirit, we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. We may fall, but we're not going to stay down. Walking in the Spirit means getting back up every time you fall down carrying your cross. Well, what if I have to get up 50 times a day? Then get up 50 times a day. And when you fall on the 51st time, don't stay down. Get back up. Up, take up your cross and follow Jesus. It means rising up in His grace and continuing to follow Him. Walking in the Spirit is you continuing to carry your cross in order to die daily. It is continuing to walk and experience the power and the newness of His resurrection life. This is what it means to die to the spiritual elements of the world. For context, let me read. Verses 20 through 22. Paul writes, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and the doctrines of men. So here in Colossians 2, 20, through 22, we see the full context of what Paul is writing about here. Why do you subject yourself to what has already been wiped out? So in Colossians 2.14, Paul informed us that the handwriting requirement that was against us has been wiped out by Christ at the cross. 
Having died with Christ from the spiritual elements of the world, you are to no longer subject yourself to those things, to those old ordinances. Why? Because Christ has wiped those out in the cross. He has set us free from the bondage of those weak and beggarly elements of the world. That's what he calls them in Galatians 4.9. Weak and beggarly elements of the world. We're to walk free from those in his new life by the Spirit. These ordinances or requirements do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. They all concern things which perish with the using. In other words, food and drink, just like days, are given to be used for man's edification. They're used up and then they're gone. Jesus also taught that it's not what goes into a man, it's not the food and drink that goes in that defiles you, it's what comes out of your life. What comes out? Is it the fruit of the Spirit coming out or it is the works of the flesh coming out? Is it anger coming out or is it peace coming out? Is it joy coming out or is it fear coming out? These requirements are from the spiritual, these requirements that we're to avoid are from the spiritual elements that we've been delivered from. And focusing on these things in regards to the flesh or the lust of the flesh will only inflame those lusts. If I want to be free from Pornography, for instance, the solution is not to think about pornography all day. If I want to be free from uh, food that I shouldn't be eating, things I shouldn't be drinking, alcohol, whatever it is, it's not to sit and dwell on those things all day. Now, I know the temptation comes, but we have to know what to do with it. But just sitting there in despair of it is not going to deliver us. Only Christ can deliver us. So when we walk in the Spirit, knowing that we've been delivered from those spiritual elements governing the world, now whether you know it or not, if you're in Christ, whether you're conscious of it 24-7, if you're in Christ, you've been delivered from those spiritual elements of the world. And what you need to do in those moments of temptation is to, is to remind yourself of that and to begin to walk in the Spirit, not give place to those elements, not focus on those elements, but turn your focus, turn your gaze somewhere else. Where might that be? Turn it upon Christ. Well, what happens, pastor, if I try to do that and I fail and I fall down? Well, then get up, pick up your cross, and keep moving forward. I don't care how many times a day you have to do that. The point is, you may fall down, but you never stay down. You never give in to those elements of the world where you start feeling sorry for yourself and you have a pity party and you start talking to yourself with the wrong things, saying the wrong things, instead of saying what God says, you start saying what the world says and what the enemy says. No, don't do that. Say what God says. Go to his word and begin to read the word to yourself. Begin to confess the word over yourself. It's not our ability to govern our fleshly desires. It is His grace and our obedience to walk in the Spirit. What we focus on is what we will be conformed to. And when we focus on those spiritual elements of the world, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, we are focused on our flesh and not His Spirit. 
And we are not operating in spiritual strength. We're operating in the weakness and the sinfulness of our flesh. But when we focus on the spirit, then we're focused on the spiritual elements of a new creation. And we're focused in those things that have the power to set us free and deliver us from the indulgence of the flesh. Verse 23 says, These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. What things? False humility, neglect of the body. But they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Paul writes, these things have an appearance of wisdom. You ever found something that has the appearance as a diamond or has the appearance of gold? It can have the appearance, but that doesn't mean that's what it is. Wisdom is the same way. Things can appear wise. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are. These things have an appearance of wisdom, but no real substance, no real wisdom associated with them. These things are not God-imposed, but self-imposed. There is no true humility in self-imposed religion. It is false humility, and therefore, really, it is sinful pride. Neglect of the body may appear spiritual, but it is in reality an exercise in futility as it is, in, as it is rooted in self-imposed religion and false humility. That doesn't mean God may not direct you to fast and to neglect your body. He may do that. But there's a difference between God directing you to do that and you imposing that upon yourself, thinking that you're going to do something that you have no power to do. All of this is futile. It has no, no power. It has no value against the indulgence of the flesh because all of this is rooted in a focus on the flesh instead of a focused obedience to the Spirit. This is the weakness and the vanity of prideful flesh in contrast to true humility in the power of the Spirit. This is why your heart must be circumcised. We go back to the previous verses where Paul talks about the circumcision of your heart. Neglecting your body and having your heart circumcised are two different things. You can neglect your body all day long, but it does not mean you have a circumcised heart. So this is why our heart must be circumcised. Your prideful flesh must be cut away so that you can know the true humility, the true freedom, and the true power that is found only in the life of the Spirit. And that is found only in Christ. And that is achieved by us only in His grace. Amen. Let's prepare to come to the table. Let's all stand. For your charge today, I'm going to begin where I'm going to end where we began. Let no let no one judge you. Let no one judge you. Let no one cheat you. Regarding the spiritual elements of this world, for you have been set free in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are set free from those spiritual elements 
of the world. And when Paul writes, let no one judge you, understand that when they stand and judge you, they stand and judge the one who saved you. When they stand and judge you for your faith, they are judging the one who saved you and gave you faith. And it's not me trying to be above. No, quite the contrary. It is us falling down before a holy and righteous God humbling ourselves in true humility, not false humility, looking unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Not what we can do for ourselves. Not what we can impose upon ourselves. Not how we can earn more favor with God. You cannot possibly earn more favor with God if you are in Christ and you are his child. I didn't say you couldn't walk more faithfully. I can walk more faithfully. I would venture to say we could all walk more faithfully, but we'll never gain more favor than what we already have in Christ. So church, walk faithfully. Walk in humility and know that God will lift you up. He will raise you up in His time, in His season. He will empower you and He will equip you to walk faithfully, to answer those temptations and to answer those lies that come to you, that are presented to you. Trust Him to fill you with His Spirit so that you would speak the Word of God with boldness. Not to condemn others, but to save, to love, in hopes that the gospel and its power would break through the hardness of men's hearts. That is what God has called us to do. He has called us to be His witnesses in this world. So go and be a faithful witness. And stay true to those things that God has revealed to you in His Word. And don't fall for the lie that is so prevalent in our culture today. And go in confidence and go in power knowing that God is with you. And He will never leave you and He will never forsake you. Amen?